Grapple fans, I want to live that way forever, but unfortunately it will result in diabetes. Welcome to the latest episode of Let Me Tell You Something's Silver Screen Visions. It's the podcast series in which myself, you let me tell you something, co-host Lorcan Mullen, and the Gene Siskel to my Roger Ebert. Mr. Simon Cross. Discuss a movie or a TV show that is in some way tangentially related to the world of wrestling. And we've got a doozy of a one today. It's genuinely the movie that, since it's been announced, has been the one I have been most looking forward to seeing at the cinema. And now, finally, it reached the English shores, hoping to carry on the wave of a load of award nominations. Sadly, that hasn't really been the case, but we'll talk about that later on. Simon. What is the movie we're going to be discussing tonight? So we're going to be watching a movie about one of the most famous wrestling families in history. But as people will go on to learn throughout the course of the film and this conversation, one of the most tragic families in wrestling history, the Von Erichs. And of course, all sitting underneath Papa Fritz's Iron Claw. Ever since I was a child... People said my family was cursed. Mom tried to protect us with God. Pop tried to protect us with wrestling. He said if we were the toughest, the strongest, nothing could ever hurt us. I believed him. We all did. Morning. Pants tomorrow, please, David. Carrie, I want you to join your brothers in the ring. Yes, sir. I love that. Now, we all know Carrie's my favorite, then Kev, then David, then Mike. But the rankings can always change. What do you want in life, Kevin Von Eric? More ribs. <laughs> I want to be with my family. You know, be with my brothers. What do you like to do with your brothers? Together, we can do anything. We're here to restore justice to the wrestling federation that our father built with his own two hands. The hands that were passed down to us. The hands that will deliver the iron clock to you. So what do you think? Like we're alive. I love your family, Kevin. Don't we, Uncle? Yes, sir. Oh, man, that makes me so happy. I talked to you about something, Mom. Dad's too tough on us. You gotta say something. Baby, that's what your brother's for. You feel that? Ah. You feel that? Ah. That's pressure. You're pushing too hard. I'm fine, Kev. Seriously, I'm just sick. Don't scare me. It all matter control. What a terrible accident. I should have stopped him. I need to think about my family. Your job is to wrestle. Live up to that deal, or we are through. I just love being out there with you guys. It's the only thing that matters to me. The Bonner will forever be the greatest family in the history of wrestling. 
So yeah, we're talking about The Iron Claw, directed by Sean Durkin, starring Zac Efron from High School Musical, Greatest Showman, Baywatch, the movie, many other films. The He's So Hot Right Now, Jeremy Allen White of The Bear, Harris Dickinson, good British actor who's been in a few interesting films, and also the Kingsman prequel. Uh, Holt McCaney, I think his name is, Holt, Holt McSomething who was in Mindhunter quite recently, the uh, Netflix series directed by David Fincher about famous mass murderers. And also a blast from the past for me, I suppose, and for many men of my age, uh, Maura Tierney, who has encountered the Iron Claw in the past, but it was on the, from the hands of Jim Carrey as her estranged <laughs> husband in Liar Liar. Such a weird coincidence that that is. We also have Lily James, our own English Rose, as Pam Adkinson, the wife of one of the characters, the the lead character of the film, Kevin Von Erich, as played by Zac Efron. And also directed by a guy called Sean Durkin. Now, Simon may not have heard of that name, but he's a very respected, I wouldn't even say up-and-coming director, just that he's a director that's had nothing but High praise for all he's done so far, but it's a relatively sparse CV. He first hit the scene with the feature film Martha Marcy May Marlene, which was a breakout role for one Elizabeth Olsen, really put her on the map. And then he followed it up with a film that came out a couple of years ago, and it was that film that I did get to see. I tried to find Martha Marcy Marlene before this recording, but wasn't able to get to it and watch it in time. But I did see the film between that and The Iron Claw, which was The Nest, starring Jude Law and Carrie Coon. He also directed, I don't know if he directed all of them or the majority of them, the episodes of the recent remake of Dead Ringers for Hulu. Oh, okay. Starring Rachel Weiss as twin surgeons. And again, I've heard very good things about that, but hasn't yet been on my to-watch pile high enough to have got it done by the time of this episode. But it's funny with Martha Marcy May Marlene and The Nest, you can almost argue that this is a, a meeting point between the two of them. Because as far as I'm aware, Martha Marcy May Marlene, the story is that Elizabeth Olsen's character is emerging from a cult situation and so is trying to come to terms with her survivor experiences, uh, uh, recovering from traumatic events that's happened to survivor her. Survivor guilt? Survivor, maybe guilt, I'm not sure, like I said. haven't seen the film, but I know it's about her trying to come to terms with life outside of this hermetically sealed universe. And then he does The Nest, and The Nest is about an aspiring family of Americans with a English husband in Jude Law, who has all these aspirations and ideals and dreams and gets what he says is a top-paying job in London and moves them into this massive house beyond their means of means of earnings potential. But Jude Law wants to put up this front, wants to give this great image of achievements and successes and this family trying to cope with the onset of issues that then befall them. Right. So, like I said, this is kind of a meeting between the two. And I expected it from the start, and I was my suspicions were pretty much correct. That if you watch the trailers, that's like half of all the wrestling footage that happens in the whole movie. 
the vast majority of this film is about the Von Erichs families and their home lives and just how all these series of events happen to them. Yeah. But I still, I'm not fussed about that. So I'm all right with us not actually talking that much about the wrestling, but we'll talk about the film. Now, obviously, when I was always thinking about two of my great loves of wrestling and movies, like what would be the great wrestling stories that would make movies? And I always said the two ones that I always thought you could do, a great film that could get like critical acclaim, would get an interest from an audience that don't necessarily follow wrestling, would either be a Raging Bull-esque character study about the Dynamite Kid, Tom Billington, Mm. or a biopic of the Von Eriks. And also, now I think you could add the Monday Night War into that, which we have done some episodes of trying to spitball ideas of how could you make a film out of it. Now I feel like events have overtaken it, so either you never make the movie, or I was thinking... And to be fair, when we were talking about it, I think we were more interested in the Eric Bischoff side of it necessarily than the Vince McMahon. You could do it from, like, mostly Eric Bischoff's perspective. Yeah. In the same way that most of the Iron Claw is from Kevin Von Eric's perspective. Do it that way. Because you can argue that Eric Bischoff gets a full narrative from start to finish, whereas Vince... <laughs> let's let's <laughs> no, not get into that. No, 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 no. Let's not. Fictional let's not. portrayals of Vince McMahon will happen in the future. I'm certain of that much. Yeah. Well, for the tape, I uh, I attended this with my good lady, uh, Holly. Um, she watched it with me, and uh, one of the questions she asked me before um, she consented to giving me like feedback which i'll share with the listeners later about the film is does it have any nonsense in it and i had to go <laughs> no and then i remembered it's the von erics and i had to go well everything else happened am i certain yes i am certain <laughs> the reason i think everyone i'm probably not the only person who thought the von erics are who you make a movie about because the story is so amazing because it's such a clear rise and fall narrative, which are so the bread and butter of so many films. Because it's got the family dynamics, because it's, you know, a period set film, but a very specific period that a lot of people know about. And also within an industry that people do know stuff about, but maybe don't know this story, so they can't attach as much preconceptions to it unless you grew up in that specific area of texas Mm. at the time and it's interesting because i've watched some clips of them doing the media rounds and they're on the kelly clarkson show and kelly clarkson is from texas and she said i grew up i was told about the von erics if you grow up around that area you know the von erics yeah and obviously we did it a recent episode of match of the week where we did a match between the von erics and the freebirds at the sportatorium a match between the von erics and the freebirds is one of the things that we do see in this film Gordy's, uh, not Gordy's hair. What's Michael Hayes? No, Buddy Roberts. Want... That's it. Buddy Roberts' hair. A sight to be old in that. I now I saw him with the hair. Then I see him with the head head guard. I get it more now. <laughs> well, also this is a vast. I remember um, when the film American Hustle, terrible director and not that good a film, uh, from David O. Russell came out a few years ago. Have you seen it? It's I have Jennifer seen it. Lawrence, Amy Adams, set around yeah, yeah. this period of time, I think, maybe a bit earlier. And Tina Fey on the Golden Globe said, American Hustle, or its original title, Explosion at the Wig Factory. <laughs> yeah, Christian had a uh, 
preys on. Yeah, there is one moment towards the very end of this film where it's very, very sad and everything. But for a split second, I did think it's quite amazing that Zac Efron's able to pull this kind of emotion from people with that wig on his head. <laughs> now. Okay. It took, I think, at least three or four times of Zac being on screen before Holly turned to me and went, Is that Zac Efron? I'm like... Yeah, it's Zac Efron. It's like, I didn't know he was in this. Like, she didn't go in with any knowledge and she didn't recognise Zac. <laughs> well, what I will say about Zac Efron is obviously the wigs do a lot of the work of making him look different, but he does look significantly different to the Zac Efron that we know before. And not physically necessarily. Obviously, we'll get to that. But face-wise, yeah. his jaw is almost like... a. A cartoon creation of a of a square jaw. He says it's because of a, a basically his chin was dangling off his face after an accident or something in the house. Mm. He smashed his chin against a marble thing, and I can believe that because whilst people in Hollywood do have professional work done on them on a regular basis, you don't see these kind of that severe a change. And also, I just don't think of all the things you want to change. Zac Efron's jawline was not an yeah, issue. Yeah, never an issue. I no. can't imagine. Not, you know, Zac Efron himself is not an issue for the... In the no, no, I was going to say, who, who are we? Who are we to say that? But yeah, but that's the funniest thing about Hollywood. These people who were born with just crazy, beautiful genetics still, if they want to have a career, are the ones that have to have more work done to maintain that. Yeah. As wonderful as Brad Pitt looked when he was 25... The fact that he still looks that wonderful at 60, there's genetics and then there's help. Yeah. Or Jennifer yeah. Lopez goes. Now, obviously, with biopics, with anything that's based on a true story, or in this case, inspired by real events. Yeah. There is obviously going to be things that you throw out the window, things that you make up, things that you move around. I mean, when we were writing our, just spitballing our ideas for the Monday Night War we were inventing scenes, Holcroft. We were having Vincent Mann turning up at the ECW arena. Watching Jerry Springer in his limo. Yeah, as I far remember. as we know, never, ever happens. Yeah. But it's a way as a narrative device to get you from certain points. How much of the Von Erich story are you aware of? Like, have you watched the Dark Side of the Ring episode? Have you... Uh, yeah, I have. Because that helped me, actually, throughout the film. Because you see uh, Kevin at his ranch in Hawaii that episode and it's like okay someone gets out of this <laughs> well that was why yeah that was why i always figured if you're gonna make this film it's gonna be through the eyes of kevin von eric because that gives you as close as possible to a happy ending yeah it's the closest you can get to it is if survival is if your point of reference throughout the whole thing is kevin von eric because he is the one that gets through it and that was why I wasn't surprised when Zac Efron was the biggest name to be cast. And that he was cast as Kevin. It was like, okay, like I suspected, you're making this story, you're making it Kevin's story. Yeah. And I, look, I get fully that there'll be artistic license. And whilst I, I've, I've, I've heard all the stories that Fritz was like that, and he probably said things akin to that, I, I think it was, the knob was turned up to 11 on the Fritz character. I kind of have to feel that's the case. Really? <laughs> I actually think they've done Fritz a... They, they've been too kind to him. I honestly mm. think that. Because I remember a story of him telling Kevin that he was the chicken because all of his other brothers did the right thing. 
So there's a Wrestling Observer Award, newsletter award, of Scummy's promotional tactic. And World Class won it four years in a row. And more than one of them was related to the death of one of his own children. Ugh. Inventing a nephew because too many of his real kids are dying. Yeah. I mean, we have to address the fact that one of the Von Erics wasn't even in the film. That's the biggest issue I have when dealing with the story that they're telling. And yes, I know it's inspired by true events. And I get the narrative reason for why Chris Von Erich is not in this film. But just there are these moments, especially the final emotional payoff for Kerry meeting his other brothers on the other side of the river. Obviously a metaphor for the river sticks and everything. Well, he puts the coin down and everything. Putting the he? coin down that he and Kevin who was decided who was going to win the world title out of the two of them. That is the first time I've heard that story, so I'm assuming that was made up for the film. And I think giving Kevin maybe a bit more of a stakes in this, because at that time it was obviously going to be either Kerry or David that was going to win the title off of Ric Flair, if anyone yeah. was going to. So it wasn't that Kevin was an equal. Kerry was the best wrestler out of all three all of them and that was well known by that point david was the best talker or the best worker kerry was the best overall maybe kevin was the best athlete and maybe the one with the closest thing to a level head on his shoulders hard to say i think you got mike and chris and they say aspects of chris's character and aspects of chris's story is attached to mike and the death of kerry is like elements of both how chris died and how kerry died Mm. but that was the moment that upset me because in that scene, especially because they bring Jack back, the son, the oldest, and they make a point that he's a child. Yeah. it Just for that to have that cathartic nature, I feel like I need the whole of them. I need Chris in that scene for that mm. to fully work. And again, I get the narrative point that it existed. And I get that this is two hours and 12 minutes and it feels too short. But how much longer can you go? But I yeah. think that there are ways that you could have done Chris's story and have it be relatively minor to the narrative. Make him a bit younger and just like, like say the scene where they're playing football together, make it the point that Chris isn't able to play with them because he's got asthma and he, yeah. like he has a, an asthma attack and he's got to sit on the benches and just make that a point that he's never quite allowed to be in them. They love him, but they also have to protect him. Yeah, And then when it does the sort of time jump to when business is down, Kevin's in charge, and he's looking on at two people in the ring, have that be someone like Chris, and mm. it be Chris. And then after Chris goes, then I think you can press time as to where Kerry's going to go and Kevin's going to go. Well, they, they imply at moments that Kevin's lost, and it's only with his family. You know, there's that moment when he's in bed and he's not reacting to anything, and it's like... That suggests that there might be a switch about to turn for Kevin. And at yeah. that moment, his wife places a baby in his arms and he's able to... He realises he has Pulls other responsibility. Yeah. Obviously, the issues you have with that, and it's probably why they don't bring up the fact that Kerry had children and he left them. Because if they're saying, like, to, to you stick around for your family, and that's what, fam- you know, your own family. Well, Kerry didn't do that. You want to get, like, the scene of David being so happy that he's going to become an uncle just when he goes off to die in Japan. That, again, is kind of undermined by the fact that in real life, David had a child, and that child had died a cot death. Jesus Christ! But again, how do you cram all that in? <sighs> yeah, and look, you have, to, you have to have a level of flow. Yeah. Now, I knew, I knew that they'd left Chris out prior to watching the film. 
Holly didn't know the Von Erich story. Mm. So I had to break it to her after we'd seen the movie that Chris was left out. And she was like, oh, yeah, she was aghast. <laughs> well, let's let's just get into this then, because that was one of the things I asked, that if you could, if you're going to go see it with your partner, would you just, and she doesn't know anything and you haven't told her anything, just get the gauge of a non-wrestling fan, what they feel about the story, how they felt, how it unfolded, how they felt about the pace of it. Because obviously for us, we're all knowing these good times aren't going to last. Well, really, the the good times are always underlying, underlay with issues, especially with Fritz from the start. So, what were the general thoughts of your partner? So, I'm I'm going to read verbatim, much as I kind of might uh, edit bits, just like just in terms of flow. So, she thought, I thought the film itself was very good. It was very engaging and emotive. The story was pretty much gut wrenching. All of the actors were excellent and played their parts well. The end, uh, where Kerry got out the boat near the end and saw the other brothers. And Jack Jr. had me crying my eyes out. I was genuinely gobsmacked that all of this really happened at the Iron Claw original. She means Fritz. Kept going on about the fucking... And had the audacity to say it was Kevin's responsibility to help his brother when he called him prior to shooting himself. Now, I'm just going to pause. I thought that was a little bit of artistic license. But with what you said about Fritz just now, that probably happened. (laughs) I think it's pretty wrong He was ne- uh, Fritz was never charged with any form of child neglect or emotional abuse, like ranking your kids, come on, basically destroying their lives and psyches to the point that all of one of your kids dies, two by suicide, brackets, three in real life. This was after she learned about Chris at this point. On that point, it seems unfair they left Chris out of the film. Also has the potential to show a great way of showing potentially a large male fan base the importance of protecting our mental health and compassion, expressing emotions and healing. I also think the story of Kevin and Pam showed a great example of how generational trauma can be broken, as the scene at the very end with Kevin and his boys showed Kevin crying, and with his boys saying it was okay, which was a stark contrast to the dad not even allowing the family to cry at the funerals, confiscating the sunglasses as well. Obviously, that's just on the film where some of it will have been dramatised or altered to fit the film narrative. And the final note is, in terms of how sad it is, I actually had to fight to quite cry quietly in that cinema. It does seem like the general consensus coming out is that this film is emotionally devastating. Oh, it hurt me. It hurt me a lot. Did you cry? I came very close. Good. Very, very close. Don't want you showing weakness, <laughs> Simon. Oh, and it was. It was Fritz uh, and how Kevin had to deal with Fritz. Obviously, my, my relationship with my dad's not by no means the best. And, you know, it, it, it hit me a little bit. that And the boat scene... Oh God in heaven! And I had that. I had that dread. The scene where Kerry's on the bike, and it's from his perspective, and she whispers to me, "Does he crash?" And I go, "You'll have to see." Knowing that not only I know he crashes, but I know what happens to his foot, and that was very well done in terms of the reveal. Because mm. you see him on crutches. You assume he's got injured. You just don't know how bad it is until he walks past the kitchen counter and the foot's gone. I don't know if that much of Kerry's foot went off or not, but doesn't doesn't matter whether it is or isn't real. The, but they do also make clear that he kept it a secret to everyone outside of the Von Erich family. What did you think of the, again, another one of those liberties taken with it, the time compression, implying that the night Kerry won the NWA World Heavyweight Championship was also the night he went out on a on his bike and lost his foot. 
<laughs> it wasn't that. The the case was he lost the title three weeks later because he missed a couple of dates and he was obviously a drug head and they couldn't trust him. And he just dropped it back to Flair. And then a year or so later was when he had the accident and lost his foot. Yeah, again, two hours, 12 minutes. Yeah. Well, that's why I think the ultimate... I do think the best way to tell this story would be in a movie. Some people say a miniseries, but I don't know if you get, like, return visits. If it's like, is every episode ending with a death? <laughs> and that would probably be how you'd, you'd have to structure it, really. Well, Game of Thrones managed for a while. <laughs> yeah. Again, the fictional... You know, it helps when there's dragons and three-eyed <laughs> ravens and so on. Yeah. The fact that you know, oh, shit, this did happen to one family all the time. And also, you know, you can make... You can kind of have a bit of fun with someone, I don't know, getting their head locked off or whatever. Three people killing themselves via suicide. Yeah. Again, I just think this was kind of this was kind of to Fritz. It points out that he was a man of sensitivities himself, saying the clarinet. Also showing that he never violently physically abuses them. Like the most that he does do is sort of mentally torture them. But whilst whilst your partner might think that, I don't know that you could go to count you, could, uh, you can't I, I, and i did explain that the council on them for that yeah well but it, 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 it points to a larger thing yeah also i do think that i do think fritz von eric because there was all this talk of could, could holt get a nomination could jeremy get a nomination could harris get a nomination for best supporting and i think the fact that that was like there was no one key standout supporting role. It could have been mm. Fritz if you wanted to go down that path. But again, I think Sean Durkin had decided this is not necessarily as much about a father abusing his children as it is those brothers forming a bond to survive through it yeah. and fight through the, the issues and share that trauma. And when it's that person, those brothers aren't there for them to share it with anymore, Kerry can't continue on Whereas Kevin has that connection, as they, as I say, they portray in the film with his family. And as yeah. I say, Kerry did have a family and didn't. Um, that's one of the reasons why they imply that like Kerry's just picking up any random woman that he sees and can't even remember the name of the woman that he had for Christmas when Kevin yeah. mentions him again later. Again, I think I might have liked it a bit more if I didn't know the story. Like, say if this had been about a family of... American footballers, like if it was a family of NFL players or, you know, those those baller brand brothers uh, in the NBA, if in 20 years' time it turns out they have a narrative like the Von Eriks, maybe I'd be, a bit, uh, be a more uh, okay with being a bit more detached from it. I, th- I think it works better as a movie for those who don't know the story. Yeah. Because people would look it up between episodes or yeah. something like that. The fact you're immersed in like a one-hit yeah. thing... But I do also think that movie needed to be a three-hour epic. It needed to be the sort of film that you, you give to Martin Scorsese when you desperately want your streaming service to, mm. to take off. And Sean Durkin doesn't have Martin Scorsese clout, obviously. Yeah. Getting getting it to two and 12 minutes with a smallish budget, I would assume. Like, if you look at it, they're not able to recreate the fights in the Texas Stadium or anything like that. Yeah. You just see Kerry walking down... The entrance ramp. And I thought they did a good job of making it look like Kerry was David in that moment with the David jacket and everything. That's also one of the issues you have with Chris. Chris's whole point is that he was so small compared to the other Von Eric brothers. The problem with that is the height that Chris is is only two inches shorter than the real height that Jeremy Allen White is. It's Kerry yeah. Von Eric. Like, you got Zach at the five foot nine Zach Efron billed as six foot two on yeah. the screen. 
And as I say, the five foot six, five foot seven inch Jeremy Allen White, as six foot two Greek god Kerry Von Eric. But it doesn't matter again those sort of things in so far as what you're trying to sell. Although it is just one of those little moments where you just realise. So, so Zac Efron's five foot nine. So that means that the guy they've got cast as Bruiser Brody is five foot eleven at most. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, well, that was a nice bit with the Bruiser Brody thing. Like, and it explained, like, they obviously dealt with the fact that wrestling was predetermined quite well. Well, there's one bit that is a problem, but we'll get to that after this. Yeah, but go on. Um, obviously, with his conversation with Pam and the Bruiser Brody bit, I thought they overall set out the table of obviously, they know it's predetermined, but Fritz acts like it's not, even though he acts like it is. Mm. Well, yeah, they basically, they have that problem that so many films have of how do you get drama out of the wrestling matches if you know the, what's going to happen ahead of time. When we do fighting with my family at some point, it's the whole thing about how do you get over the paid triumphing in spite of the fact during her match with AJ Lee with the fact that she knew going into that match with AJ Lee that she was gonna she was going win. To, How'd yeah. you make it work? And they have it be that Paige is trying to win the crowd over and that's the battle that she's having and that's how they have Michael Cole commentating over it. That's the story they're having him tell with the audience as well. <laughs> Again, tough to do. Or they go down the path of making it real or whatever. And they sort of have that problem with the two matches that Kevin has for the world title. At the start against Harley Race, and then towards the end of the film against Ric Flair. Yeah. And they imply that, like, Kevin gets himself disqualified in his match with Flair, and Fritz and, to an extent, Kerry are disappointed in him for that behaviour. And I, I don't think they get across why that would be a problem, or what Zac Efron did that was wrong. Although, and we'll get into the Ric Flair part of it as well, but... Yeah. Well... I might want to counter that sound you just made. <laughs> but what I think they should have had was when he was out there, they should have said, we need good business, we need to generate it, and you need to get over. I've got you a 60-minute time limit with him. Yeah. And then the ref disqualifies him for the holding on to the iron claw, and they can say, like, the ref had no choice. He had to yeah. call it as a shoot. Yeah. And he'd done the DQ thing. I had to DQ him. And that would be the way that I think you could have conveyed how's, how Kevin Von Erich had gone off script in a way that would have worked. And in the first part with Harley Race, what they're saying is like, Harley Race hit him with a suplex on the outside and he wasn't expecting it and that hurt yeah. him. And he was struggling to get in because he was injured. And then he was too tired to cut a promo at the end and David comes in, shows he can talk. And that's why David sort of moves up in the rankings at that moment with... And not long after the Soviet boycott and Kerry turns up. And that's, in the movie, that's when you feel like really, like, sorry for Kerry. It's like, oh, no. Well, it also shows the, the bonds of brotherhood insofar as, like, Kevin has those moments of jealousy or anger or whatever with his brothers, but the love always supersedes it with them. Yeah. And as I said, because they've had this lifetime of shared trauma, probably also extending far back to them losing a brother and so that probably is what makes their own bonds stronger because they know how how special having a brother is and how yeah you can you know and, and they're all sharing that experience it's like the shared traumatic experience that the jacksons had under joe jackson and they would say that michael would suffer by not being hit because he was the one that was the best performer 
and Joe would punish the other boys for not being as good as Michael, so Michael would take on the guilt of being the cause for them suffering. To be punished, yeah. And maybe they're the ones that you could come closest to saying that the Von Erichs echo with the, the Jackson 5 in that regards. Yeah. And so the depiction of the other wrestlers, we don't really get a lot. We see one brief dialogue-free scene of Lance Von Erich, age, uh, as played by executive producer MJF. Yep. I think I've already sent you my version of that with the from the Homer Simpson, Mel Gibson episode. <laughs> Who are you? Anyway, to the words executive producer mean anything to you? Executive producer? We'll talk. We'll talk. Because <laughs> he was early in those credits as well. Yeah. He got a full single credit on the screen. <laughs> yeah. So you have... What's Ryan Nemeth plays Gino Hernandez, which was the role I think everyone thought MJF would be playing. It, it seems like if you were to base it on looks, you would have cast Ryan Nemeth as Lance Von Erich and MJF as Gino Hernandez. Yeah. But it's also we're thinking because this is going to be some great story about the whole world class territory, and it's really not that at all. And not again. I think that I've always thought there's a great HBO TV series to be made, not about a specific territory necessarily, but a, do- a drama series set within the, the ter- a territory. Yeah, yeah. Heels is kind of like that, but it's set in a modern day, so there's not re- so it's more like the wrestlers in that sense that it's not a territory. It's just a little indie promotion in and of itself in the middle of bumblefuck nowhere. No offence to Ohio Valley, which I was shocked to realise years later wasn't in Ohio. (laughs) There's only one scene where you kind of see the debauchery that was famous of that scene at the time. You see a little bit of snorting, a little bit of drinking, and someone someone crashing over a bar. I think David's shown as having a bit of fun. Yeah. But they also don't suggest that David has drug... They they imply that the drug issues are pretty much just Kerry's. Mm. Whereas, you know, and the... David's death is the death that's always been the Von Erich line of explanation, which has been a, a theory long disputed by yeah. everyone whose surname is not Von Erich. Uh, but they go with the Von Erich choice of telling the story that David is genuinely sick and he does die with issues related to that illness. Yeah. Maybe that's true, maybe it's not, but, you know... They, they sort of basically put all of the 80s excess onto Kerry, and I think all of the Von Eriks were guilty of it, to some oh, degree yeah. or another, just like every wrestler in the 80s was basically... I was about to say, wrestling in the 80s. Exactly. I think Jerry Lawler was pretty much the only person that didn't take a, any of that stuff, and, you know, he owned a territory, and eventually owned this territory. Yeah. <laughs> or co-owned it with Jerry Jarrett, anyway. Who we see, another one of the names that we do see, briefly. Yeah, bless him. And there could be a whole other film about all the people in world-class championship wrestling and just the Von Erichs are part of it. Again, you could make a TV series out of that and give Gino Hernandez and Bruiser Brody and Chris Adams and a young Steve Austin. You could involve all of these people in a story like that over a number of years. But again, that's not what we're talking about here. And I thought the wrestling was fine. I don't think it was a brilliant interpretation of what mod... It was just kind of basics of wrestling... What Chavo can teach a bunch of actors to do convincingly for a couple of moments. Yeah. And then nothing much beyond that. Again, it's not the crux of the story. No, it's not the crux of the story. But if you want to go period specific, it doesn't get that across. I mean, it's only because of watching the footage of the Von Erics against the Freebirds to know that that's not, it's not just 
always the generic version of wrestling that you see in movies yeah. where the crowd's going crazy for everything. Well, they genuinely were going crazy for everything yeah. when it came to the Von Erics against the Freebirds. That was actually one of the really good bits of visual storytelling, I thought, as well, where Mike Von Erics gets involved in his match and hurts his shoulder, and the camera's just pulling back away from it, and you're noticing there are rows of empty seats mm. around the place. Now, that's probably as full as it always was, but they just darken those when yeah. it's the, the glory days. But that's just their sign of things are starting to fall apart and the money and the, the interest isn't there anymore. I think, they could, again, they could have done that more with, like, Chris Von Erich being there and him being the, the top, like, the, the, <sighs> one of the stars and they're just not being the interest for him. Because I, I, I go, I'm going back and forth with Chris being in it or not because... Michael's story was, I hate saying this because it, it all of it is tragic as all of it. I don't want to diminish it, uh, diminish what happened to Chris at all, uh, especially how young Chris died, which I didn't know uh, until afterwards, is you've got all of the elements. And I think you're right. I think they blend two brothers into one. They sort of do, but weirdly it was the opposite ends of the spectrum for Mike and Chris in another way where Mike didn't want to be a wrestler, was forced to be a wrestler. Whereas Chris desperately wanted to be a wrestler and couldn't be a wrestler. Mm. Or was by the time he could become a wrestler, the Von Erichs had lost their power in the territory as well. Yeah. Like, it was being booked by Jerry Jarrett at that point. Not as it's implied that, like, Kevin sells and then it's, you know... I mean, that could have been another way that you get into Chris's death and that could be another sign of, like, the guilt that Kevin might feel... With Chris's death too. As I said, I don't think you needed Chris to be like a lead in the film like the other four are. Yeah. And the fact that his... It, like, I think I've said it already. The fact that Chris's story is dispensable enough that they can move it out is like the ultimate example of how tragic Chris on Eric's real life was. Yeah. That he was even dispensable in the film telling of the Von Eric story. Yeah. It's like another level of sadness to that man's life and death. Yeah, it's pretty. It is. It is brutal. But again, just I I understand. Again, like you say, if they'd had more budget, if they had more time. Yeah, and I think it's things like the lack of budget makes it hard for them to display just how big the Von Erichs were. You have a bit of montage of magazine covers, and genuinely at that time, Kerry was on as many magazine covers in the nineteen eighty four period as Hulk Hogan and Ric Flair were. Yeah. So they couldn't, and they can't show them in the Texas Stadium, but. The one shot that I guess it was a special effect shot to show how big they were is that funeral procession mm. where you get the overhead shot and you see all these people there just to the wake. And yeah. again, that could have been a way of showing further tragedy if you kept going to the funeral and there were fewer people showing up. Yeah, they there's that scene where the mum, like you think she's struggling to put on the dress because it's doing it again. But then it's her ca- her callousness which she sort of picked up from Fritz, comes in, where she goes, well, they'll recognise it. So it's not about having to put on a dress for another son. No, that's not what... She doesn't mean that when she says it. Or if a, she's not saying it like it's a fashion faux pas, like two people wearing the same dress at the Oscars. She means it's like people will be reminded that I've lost so much, that, that tragedy covers our family. And the point of that as well, I think, is to show that Lily James's character is this emotional release, not just for 
Kevin, but in that brief moment for her mother-in-law, who she spoke disapprovingly of at the wedding yeah. by saying, oh, if she puts on a bit of makeup, you know, she has a bit of effort. Again, it's one of those, it's kind of like that line in the Barbie film, Margot Robbie's not the person you cast if you want to make that point. Yeah. So like, Lily James is not the person that you can say, oh, she can be pretty. Yeah. <laughs> and it's another one of those examples as well of like how leading men don't play sixth lead in a film like this but someone like lily james who's literally starred in a billion dollar disney movies starred in one of the big tv miniseries of last year which i haven't seen yet of uh, pamela anderson and i think is probably if she's not oscar nominated now she will be in the very near future yeah she gets like those two scenes at the start with zach efron where she gets him to ask her out and then at the the date itself and then after that she's essentially just the the wife and also the the, the emotional crutch that he has that can mm. it's all to service his story and she just fades in the background really yeah again if you did it as a three-hour epic or if you did it as a mini series she would probably be a lot more directly involved in it but i do love that scene i always remember it it's a bit that they kept in the trailer as well it's such a wonderful little bit of acting of her being a bit nervous intimidated at the sight of Kevin. Yeah. But knowing exactly what she wants from this as well. Yeah. And, yeah. and kind of plucking up the courage within herself to do this. And it's you know, it's a hell of a it's a hell of a lovely way to live that you can have someone like Lily James just <laughs> talking to <laughs> it. It's it's a life we would all love to live. Oh god, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I think with the mother, just to go back to the mother. Okay, maybe that scene was that. Maybe it's just how I interpreted it, just like seeing it once. I think what's good for her is her breaking point. That scene where she's painting and Fritz comes in and goes, what's for dinner? I've I've not made anything. Mm. Cope with it. Well, they did divorce a few years before his death. Mm. So that's essentially the way of saying it. And yeah, it's again, another one of those Interesting where the breaking point is there. Right, well, three kids, four kids are dead. You you have a hand in like creating the circumstances in which they did like led to this. Maybe it's that sense of like by then they know that Kevin's quote unquote safe, so this is as far as it's gonna go. But it's still you know too far for her. Like just it's just a case of the three hour ten minute version of this if you could do it, and that would have to make it like an epic about America. But you could also like if you had the budget and the time for that, and so you could you could Killers of the Flower Moon this and have these big dramatic scenes across a giant you know texan farmland and it's also in the you know during this period of great reaganomic successes in you know the soap yeah. opera dallas is literally on tv at the time all this is happening in dallas as well and that is also about family intrigue and yeah. sudden untimely deaths and in their cases coming back from the dead <laughs> <laughs> so they could have done all those things as well with it and so you could have got a couple of scenes for Lily James. You could have got a couple of scenes for Maura Tierney to really mm. flex their muscle and for Holt McEnany as well, where they could have all just built it up a bit. But it was about, fundamentally, it was about Kevin, Kerry, David and Mike. 
Yeah. And those are all performances that are they're, they're strong across the board. They all elicit their emo- emotional reactions from you. I think Kerry's weirdly the most underserved because he was the biggest star out of all of them. Yeah. But because it was Kevin's story, they can't really build him up as much. There's a, there's references to him being in the WWF. Yes. And it's like when Fritz is like, you're mint. You're just here. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And they're saying that they, they, got, they don't quite convey enough why being NWA world champion was so big, but now being the WWF intercontinental champion is the second biggest thing you can yeah. be. And I did love the little name drop of Hellwig. No, oh, he ain't nothing. <laughs> during his time in the world-class territory was known as the Dingo Warrior before yeah. he moved on. Uh, uh. And, and the, we actually do see that footage in Blurred because it was again like they can't recreate something like that with the WWF budget and the lights and the arena so they had to obviously get the rights from WWF to show that footage of in, again in blurred images from the TV carries two highest moments of winning the world yeah. title from Ric Flair and that's watched more tierney with the ghost of David sitting on the stairs to watch it and then they didn't do it where it was Kevin with the ghost of anyone behind them watching that but they are watching some of it. But his sons are watching it and like, Uncle Kerry, way he did yeah. it. And also, it's one of those problems as well because it's actual Kerry in the ring. Was it like, David or was it Mike? Uh, am I misremembering? David's the one when Kerry wins the world title. Ah, uh, no, I'm on about on the stairs. It There's, is Mike. Yeah, on, on the, the stairs. Sta- no, on, yeah. on the stairs, it's the ghost of David. Ah, oh, I've remembered it as Mike. I do apologize. No, it's, Mike's not dead at that point. Mike has to go into the ring. After that, because it's about how the business is falling at that point, and so like Mike's probably there in the arena with Kevin as he walks out to win the title. So yeah, just briefly, let's get into Harley Race and Ric Flair and the depictions of the world champion and what it means. And they're both given this great ominous music for them, and they're cutting the promos. Just before we do, there's two scenes I do specifically want to like talk about okay the scene where mike is told he can't go to the gig and then uh, they all th- there's that look among like across the table of all the other brothers like well we're gonna make this happen so cope with it yeah that's them basically at their happiest points really yeah but they're all together at a party and kevin's girlfriend loves all of them and they hook up for the first time implied that it's kind of kevin's first time yeah maybe maybe not um <laughs> And obviously the scene at the end post Kerry shooting himself where Kevin snaps and strangles the crap out of Fritz. I thought they would make more of it being like the iron claw, but he has it over his throat. So he would have done it like like he's so strong you could have choked his father out one-handed and they don't yeah. do that. But I, that's one of those moments where it's like people who don't know the real story will be watching that going, oh my God, does he kill his dad? Does yeah. he actually kill? Is this the end point of this narrative? If I didn't know, yeah. I would have thought that. The way the story is told, you're like, well, you can't exactly blame him. <laughs> it's not a good idea, but you can't blame him. <laughs> uh, but you know, it's just those two scenes where the ho- the literal highest high and the lowest low, like they're your peaks and troughs, and it's just how those are told. And that's why I feel they need to give the people that emotional relief. Although, as as I read it, that's Kevin hoping that this is what's happened to Kerry now that he's found his peace. And I always worry with ones where the implication with suicide is that it comes with a release that you can, you know, 
it's always a mess. It's like when Robin Williams uh, successfully committed suicide. And I remember, I think it was Disney. They did an image of Aladdin hugging the genie and saying, you're free now. Yeah. And it's like, I get why you thought in that moment, but... Well, actually, we want... you're not meant to say committed exactly. anymore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I was trying to remember the words that go with it. That took their, I think it's took their own life. Took their own life, yeah. You know, look, yeah. I think my intentions are obvious in the way that I say no, it. I no, 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 no. I apologise if I've hurt anyone's feelings, and I'll try to say it right in the future. Oh, but yeah, no. that's where it is. And for me, like, the moment... I was a bit confused in that moment. I was like, are they flashing back to what he did before he shot himself? And then you realize when he looks down and he sees both his feet and he's barefoot and he's able to just contemplatively. I think that's going to be the moment that people will like sob the hardest at the, the sides of the brothers and everything. Oh, that's that got me the most. But it's like, you know, it's like but it's presenting this this afterlife as a way to try and get some sort of happy ending out of a real story. It's like how at the end of Titanic it ends with the happiest ending possible for them which is Rose comes back on the Titanic and 25-year-old Leonardo DiCaprio's there waiting to her. Yeah. Or maybe not 25 yet, but you know, that's obviously <laughs> Leonardo, as far as Leonardo DiCaprio goes, that's the the, the end point anyway. <laughs> Someone did. I have seen. I, I haven't watched the video, but I saw like the the description of it. Some com- British comedian did do a sketch recently of a uh, Rose's husband waking up. Oh, this is lovely. Where, <laughs> where have we? What? What? Oh, oh my wife. She looks amazing. Where? Where's she going? Yeah. <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> and then we have Kevin. With his kids and the boys say, you can cry and we'll be your brothers. And Again, that's like taking half of a famous quote that Kevin Von Erich had, which was, I had five brothers, now I'm not even a brother. Obviously, they would have to have to say, I had four brothers. Maybe that's probably why they wanted to remove that line as well and just simplify it. But again, I guess guess it's that saying that life goes on and we can go through with it and giving the big family photo of him on that ranch in Hawaii. They don't specify that with all those kids. One, he's been punted a hell of a while. Oh, yeah. <laughs> he's got, he got launched, that kid. You just worry that the next, again, you worry the next line, uh, they failed to catch the child and he suffered. <laughs> <laughs> Any other film. <laughs> but yeah, I think this is going to be a film. I-, I love seeing films, even if I don't enjoy them. Even if I don't enjoy them that much, usually there'll be films that I will enjoy. But I do like going out of a film and thinking that's going to be some people's favorite film of all time. And I think there'll be some people for whom The Iron Claw will be, if not their most favorite, one of their most favorite films of all time. And again, I don't know that those people will necessarily be wrestling fans. Yeah, I I, I loved it. I loved it a lot. I would go. Again, ratings, whatever. But if you were to force me, I would go a strong 7 to a light 8. I don't think it would be in my top 10 for the year. Uh, it wouldn't have been in my top 10 of last year. I don't yet know if it will be my top 10 of this year. That remains mm. to be seen. I think my issues were just the, the pacing of it, the up and down of it. Some of the dialogue was very blunt and basic. Um, if you look at it, it's so strangely structured. And it just has to rush through everything. So some moments just don't get the time to breathe. And we do get these moments where they do. But it just it feels like uh, it feels like an edited version of a longer film. Yeah. And I don't know that there'll, there'll be a director's cut that will be the definitive version of it anyway. 
look, because I say the definitive version of this film has Chris in it. <laughs> yeah. And so again, I think I, I imagine if I hadn't, if I didn't know the story, maybe I would have pushed it up to a light eight to a decent eight. Mm. But from where I am, from my just my personal experience and my personal rating of it, that's where I would go personally. Yeah, I, I'll I'm I'll be firm in my eight. It's an eight that's stronger to a closer to a nine than it is. A yeah, seven. yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm slightly higher in the. So rhythm. you're like decent to strong eight if we use the Anthony Fantano scale. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I absolutely think that's utterly legit a feeling. Someone described it on Letterboxd as a power ballad of a movie. And I don't know if I agree with that fully because power ballads kind of are almost always triumphant. They might yeah. have a tragic video like November Rain by Guns N' Roses, but there's always just that fuck yeah element to it. Whereas this is more like, a, I don't know, it's a great country ballad, maybe. <laughs> you know, like a great tragic country ballad. But I think the reason that they say it's a power ballad of movies is because of that great song that plays over the credits. And that was one thing I really loved. I wish there were more movies like back in, like they were back in the day where the credits were like shots of each actor and the character they were playing. Because it's one of those things like we've been on a hell of a journey with these people. And it's like yeah. evoking a nostalgia for something that was maybe even just an hour or so earlier. But again, because of the, the highs of the highs and then the lows of the lows, to go back to them when they're all young and beautiful and alive <laughs> in that moment you know it's like the only other film i know that did that in recent years was the avengers endgame yeah where they flout got the the top six of them signing their names off as they finished the movie which was that and, and that's that's a great touch but again that was like the end of an epic journey but yeah. but th- this one felt the three hour argument would you emotionally burn people out if you told all of it? Well, I don't think you'd have to emotionally burn people out. You could just get the scale and the scope of it more. Yeah. And you could maybe space out the tragedy. Because that's the thing. Like It feels like it's about 70, 80 minutes of the fall. And then just boom, boom, boom. <laughs> you can't relent from it. So if you could have almost phased it across a bit longer yeah. and shown that it was kind of a, a, a rocky road of ups and downs, like you could have seen, there could have felt more of a sense of triumph in that moment that Kerry does get the title. And also, yeah, that is the one thing I would have also included in my version of this film. And I think they could have done it in the two hour 12 version as well. They imply that Fritz is basically fighting against the establishment from outside. Whereas what Fritz was, was a key part of the establishment. I would have had at least one scene of him in a boardroom with all these other guys to get, again, better get the sense of what the territory system is and why being the world champion is important and having that world champion be someone from your home promotion. I think they could have done a really good scene of like Fritz essentially fighting his case for his brothers. And you could have had one where he's fighting for Kevin and then the next one, just briefly, yeah. you see him fighting for David's side or whatever. They get that through with like the promo in the ring, which is like his great moment. And I do think that's probably the best filmed part of telling the story within the context of the actual wrestling show itself, as well as Kevin stumbling over his promos with David watching on and just knowing, you know, I could do this in like two seconds. Like a brother, like a pure brother, that bit. And it's again one of those cases that if anyone else had said that to Kevin, he would probably slap them across the face, but because it's David, he's the one he can deal with. It's fine. Um, it, you you called it like the, like the, the speed of the falls... And there's a Simpson scene I have in my mind, just how this film is. And it's Homer trying to jump Springfield Gorge. 
Like, I'm going to make it. I'm going to make it. I'm king of the world. And then he just keeps falling. And then he falls again. Yeah. It's kind of the tragedy's part on top of it. It's almost like a scene from all my circuits in Futurama. Yeah. <laughs> Let me get this straight. Does anyone here not have amnesia? Oh. <laughs> but to go back now to the thing that made you ugh. The depictions of the two world champions. And and I do think that the way they explain why the world championship is important is very well done with how Zac Efron explains to Lily James, who is basically the audience stand-in for what wrestling is. And he says, it's like getting promoted to a job. And that's the ultimate, you're doing the right thing. And he says, you've got the crowd on your side. You've got this, you've got that, you've got the other. You bring business. And... They play that really well. And then they show that Harley and Rick are kind of like... Harley's like this old school, tough, rough and tough tumble. Kind of an embodiment of what their dad was. And maybe they could have played up more of that. And Ric Flair was basically the embodiment of the 80s excess. But the guy that can just go with it. He goes with the flow. When Kevin's overly harsh and makes him bleed and everything. And he's getting bollocked backstage. Ric Flair turns up and is like, that was great. You want another match anytime? Yeah, well, I'll sort you out. He's just chugging beers with his belt on whilst the rest of this stuff's yeah. going on in the front, in the foreground. Now, my ugh was, and it wasn't only my ugh in the cinema. I heard this on the way out from other people. It's like the guy who played Rick got to play Ric Flair. <laughs> I disagree to an extent. The issue that people have, obviously, is that he doesn't sound like Ric Flair. First of all, one of the things that always gets me with people who critique acting very often the only thing that they'll fall back on is just what was with that accent so many of the best actor oscars nowadays go to people portraying real life people because it's a great impression and it's not the impression that's important if you look at the elvis argument i'm just saying i'm just saying there is nothing there is nothing in jesse eisenberg's performance in the social network that really maps onto how mark zuckerberg appears to look sound or behave or function the weird guy (laughs) but and admittedly mark zuckerberg wasn't as public a persona as he is now compared to when he was in that movie yeah and the fact you're now rooting for him over elon musk in a cage match well i was mutual destruction would be the preferred option yeah but let's be realistic (laughs) but my point is the quality of the impersonation or the quality of the accents are not the top reason of why a performance is or isn't good. But it's usually everyone's go-to, especially if they're talking in a voice that's not the voice that you know them for. Like, the main reason people thought Austin Butler could get the Oscar for Elvis and be the youngest guy that ever played Elvis is because he did the voice really well, and he even kept the voice year like a year after he'd done it. He full on Steve McLaren. Like some sort of method acting thing. It implies that his character in Dune Part 2, or as I like to call it, tune it might be a mute and i I'm, i wonder if that's because he was still talking in his elvis voice <laughs> that's it no lines <laughs> uh, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna take over the for the house treaties here you're no match of the harkonnens uh-huh <laughs> that sound worm that's more martin luther king what am I doing? oh my god i'm just imagining an elvis surfing movie but he's surfing a sandworm well about this dude and a dog and a tune and everyone's doing the worm doing the worm they're doing the worm anyway <laughs> what i also that that video that was making the rounds was an edited version where it's like it implies he goes straight in with the woo which is not a rick flair woo yeah. but it's the point of the promo is to show that this is some guy of wild 
great grand gesticulations, has all that charisma, has that presence. And I do think he evokes the flair presence when he makes that entrance and just soaks in the booze and has the the jacket on. And again, that's something I think if they'd had the budget to show a full crowd, to show that like when Ric Flair comes to town, that's when things get busy again. And they could say like business had gone down at this point because this is 1986. WWF has overtaken them and all that stuff. And this was like a pivotal moment for them to try and get business around and Kevin screws it up in that regards. And again, I don't think they get that fully mm. across. I don't I don't think it's like a world beating performance. I think for what he had to do for that movie and what Ric Flair had to represent in that moment, he gets like the cadence down. He just doesn't get the voice down. Mm. And the, as I say, the voice is the least important. Do you have any fucking idea what Julius Caesar sounds like? Exactly. But I didn't see Julius Caesar's last match like two years ago, did All I? All right. Well, okay. Did you know going into Oppenheimer what Harry Truman's voice sounded like? No. There. That's my point. Did it or did it not matter? Does Does Killian Murphy sound that much like Oppenheimer? I don't know. Not really. It's not important. Yeah. So that's me just kind of as an ex-actor as well, just rallying against some of the like the fundamental criticisms and praises of performances that get overly praised or overly critiqued. It, like, it feels like there's been a turnaround and a backlash to, for example, Rami Malek's performance in Bohemian Rhapsody. Because, again, it's just like, just a fucking... If this was how we based it on, then Rory Bremner should be um, have as many Oscars as Spencer Tracy. <laughs> oh, I'd love it. Oh, I'd love it. Oh, shot for shot remake of Ben Hur, Rory Bremner. Come on, let's go. Let's go. We'll be an American equivalent of that. Dana Carvey. Dana Carvey is a moth. To be fair, Dana Carvey does deserve at least one Best Supporting Actor Oscar for either Wayne's Worlds 1 or 2. Does this mean we're, we're going to get Scarface with Rob Brydon as the lead? Because I could live in that world. I wouldn't be against it. He was in Barbie movie, so there's obviously he's so hot right now. <laughs> It's again, it's just one of those things where it's like, I get why, as wrestling fans, it bothers us. You know, just like how I'm bothered with the lack of Chris Von Erich. I get it, but I don't think it's important. And, I, no. and, I, and I've conceded that point as to why they haven't included Chris Von Erich in this. And to be, and I, like, I don't know if this is to be fair to them, because I say that word too much, but apparently, like, right, the last credits is, like, dedicated to Jack, Kevin, Kerry, David, Mike, and Chris. So that's the shout out, Chris. But it, but it's like even in that photo, you know, they always do that thing where they show the real people. They had to make sure it was a photo where Chris wasn't there. Mm. So, uh, and, and again, it, we, we've laid the Chris point, but well, I kind of we're giving Chris the, the credit that <laughs> the film never did. There, there you go. We can view I, it that way. He has been asked about it, and he has said like I think he said like he's been drafting the scripts for this for seven years, and for five of those seven years, Chris was in it. Yeah. And again, like, there's limitations of time, there's clearly limitations of budget. As I've said, the best version of this would be if Martin Scorsese had wanted to make this film for Apple instead of Killers of the Flower Moon. That's the best version of The Iron Claw that we're never going to get. And I would say this is the second best movie about wrestling I've ever seen. The Wrestler? Yes. What else did you... No. Fucking walk like Ready a panther. Ready to rumble! Ready to rumble! <laughs> or get out. Walk like a panther. It's my number one choice. I I'm declining to comment because I'm very af- very afraid of recency bias. Well, we only watched the wrestler last year, I think, or the year before that. Yeah, I think if I'll go for the film that impacted me more, like emotionally, and that is Iron Claw. 
I just think the wrestler is a more effective character portrayal than this is a family epic saga. Yeah. That's what yeah, I would I mean, say. Yeah. So you've got to kind of judge them for what they're all aspiring to be. That's true. That's where where I would stand with it. Uh, yeah. I thought the Harley Race guy did do the voice very well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I had no issue with the Harley Race guy. Mine, mine was, I guess, the body of Flair. Because Flair was Flair at his like, athletic peak, wasn't it? 80s Flair. Yeah, unfortunately, we didn't get the guy. I don't think the, guy, the actor actually did any real moves. He just got punched by... <laughs> and that was another thing that bothered me. It's one of those things, ah, technically, but... And it's not the first one that's done this. Glow did this as well. Putting tap-outs in a 1980s wrestling scene. Yeah. I get it, but it's just one of those little historical contexts and everything. That's not how it works. I'm glad that we haven't really spent any time until now talking about Zac Efron's body, because that has basically been what every review starts off with. Hmm. But it is pretty insane. Yeah. <laughs> Again, she didn't recognise him. <laughs> well, I mean, he's always had a... Like, I always said that I still think his physique in Baywatch is scarier than the physique in this movie because it does have some muscle mass on it. Whereas mm. that is pure, like... Like, I don't think you could pinch an ounce of... Fle- uh, like, a, a finger... A, a little two-finger pinch of flab from yeah. him in Baywatch than you could here. I do worry because, like, you clearly he's pushed himself physically to the limit in multiple ways. He has had a admitted cocaine problem. I hope that my worst fears for where Zac Efron ends up couldn't make, like... It could make the Iron Claw even more important, like like how the Dark Knight is to Heath Ledger. I'm not even going to say it's going to go to that far of an extreme. Mm. But it's just there's, there's element, there's things of Zac Efron's life. I hope that my worst fears aren't true because he does portray a very level-headed, even easygoing guy who's done these couple of extreme things, and he's obviously done this. This film was him trying to. This was his first big push for an Oscar, and it didn't yeah. work out. And that was one of the things that did excite me about this film as well. That it was a twenty-four, who are a symbol of quality more than anything like they've got that symbol of quality that like pixar had in the 2000s really yeah and to an extent marvel had for the first four phases of their their existence first three phases sorry of their existence we'll definitely see more from harris dickinson i think we'll definitely see some more from jeremy allen white i still haven't watched season two of the bear i need to get back on that mm, another, another show yet. that did uh 80s power ballads good <laughs> <laughs> someone said like the bear has done so much for dad rock <laughs> it's incredible if you haven't watched them i would suggest binging them as quick as you can yeah. episodes are nice and concise as well for the most part they're all like 25 26 minutes the comedy is in the Emmys, which is absurd, but we won't get into that. <laughs> See more Tier- I wish more Tierney had more stuff because I've always liked her as an actor. I know she was in a TV series with Dominic West called The Affair, which is it's just another one of those things. Just, there's too much TV to watch. She probably has been doing good stuff. I just haven't seen it. Yeah, <laughs> you can't keep track of everything. No. Oh, I really enjoyed I mean, impressive as well with Holt. Like he he wasn't the height of Fritz von Erich, but he had everything else with the presence and like his uh, the opening scene of him wrestling like 1950s style. That was one of the few times where it was kind of like the wrestling fit the time period and yeah. did look specifically designed and catered towards what Fritz as a wrestler was probably like. And he was very convincing in those trunks <laughs> in a different way to uh, the other guys. He played the character very well and despite everything there was a level of like pride and love 
for his children, but it was such a warped and twisted version. You couldn't... Em- and as long the movie went on, that you couldn't really empathise with him at all. Yeah, like I said, I think they gave the real Fritz... They were a lot kinder to him than they could have been. Mm. And then if I'd have made this film, then I would have been towards yeah. him. I was wondering, like, they should... Maybe they had a deleted scene where he does look at his clarinets and thinks of dusting it off like his wife did with the painting and maybe he just breaks it over his knee in anger or something yeah that might have been a nice little scene i wish he had more but when you were left wanting more that's always a good sign yeah oh yeah nothing was overspent or overplayed yeah. and i still think now i guess now that i've got my von eric story i don't think there's much point in doing a dynamite kid story I do think at some point we're going to get something about the attitude era of wrestling, but in the context of Vince McMahon as we know him now, to the context even of a year ago of what we knew of him. Yeah, that the whole situation's got to breathe. Yeah. You either have to wait some time, or the way that you present Vince McMahon for the next five or six years in anything. I've said, like, basically Dark Side of the Ring should dedicate a whole season to that man. They could dedicate the multiple seasons. To I, I, I think they're waiting. Yeah. Yeah, one day we will get a Vince McMahon movie. It just better not be in a hundred years' time and it's the greatest showman version of him. I have it in my... I, I don't like making this comparison, but it's the uh, it's what's in my head, so I'm just going to have to go with it. I just remember how quickly things changed once Jimmy Savile died mm. and everything came out because the dead can't sue you. Oh, yeah. Well, obviously, at a time of recording, the Ashley Massaro stuff, which was really kind of always out there, but it's just getting re-spotlighted. It's sad that it's come to this to get it re-spotlighted. I've said from the start, there'll be multiple episodes you can look back on during the run of these recordings where I've said, Vincent Mann, I think, is fundamentally a bad person. I'm not someone who necessarily thinks evil is a real thing, but if there are evil people in this world, Vince is one of them. <laughs> but, again, that's for another depiction, another story, another time in the future. Whether it's... Well, we've got the Netflix documentary still supposed to come out. Does that get shelved? Are they going to David Zaslov that one? I don't know, but we'll wait and see. I think they might. <sighs> I, I hope other people that I know see the movie that aren't into wrestling... And give their opinions of it. I do think this is a film that could grow in stature and popularity. I could see it being a real kind of movie for blokes who want to cry. Yeah. Or movies for women who want to see men cry. (laughs) (laughs) So my cousin's uh, replied to one of my tweets earlier. And her response was, I don't think I'm ready to see it yet. And I'm like, you've got to get it done. And does she know much about wrestling? She followed it during the Attitude Era. Uh, Like when she was like a teenager. I wouldn't say she followed it beyond that. She liked Total Divas for a while. Well, I wonder if there are going to be moments, like the moment where he wins the, they see him winning the Intercontinental Champion in the background, that some people go, oh, he was the Texas Tornado. Because I had a friend, like my friend that I used to bore with my love of wrestling in the first years of my wrestling fandom, I used to show him my wrestling cards and he would like give characters to each of them and he would always say that Texas Tornado was his favourite. I don't know why he just... I think he just liked the name. And he liked <laughs> that he span around. And obviously the reason for that, they did that. It's another one of those things where the WF simplifies something. And he was like, why was his finishing move spinning around and punching you in the face? And I said, well, he was a genuine Olympic-level discus thrower. He's yeah. like, oh! And that was like 35 years of mystery finally solved. <laughs> and... 
Yeah, I mean, most people who listen to this will have watched it already, I would have thought. Oh, yes. Yeah. And that's why I was not even going to bother saying spoilers or anything. And also, yeah. when ones that are based on true stories or inspired by true events. How can you spoil it? You can spoil it insofar as talking about, like, the Car- like the Carrie Von Eric going over the river scene. I yeah. guess you could say that's a spoiler. And that is probably well, the peak. That is the, mo- that is the moment that's going to get TikToked, I yeah. imagine. <laughs> and along those lines. Oh, God. But, yeah. Uh, that's, that's it for us. Yeah. Uh, you, you can't really go out triumphant with a bang. Although, I will say just one last thing. The the score is great throughout, I think. Especially the music that plays, that ominous music for the two times that the world champions yeah. are there. And it's like that sense of this is the ultimate of this industry. And it's Kevin's most stressed out levels and... He yeah. does it. He screws up both times, but in different ways, I suppose. Yeah. Although again, it's like, ah, oh, why did it take you ages to get up? And it's like, well, he's building up in sympathy with the crowd. Yeah. Shouldn't you be complimenting him for that? <laughs> Selling. But, yeah. Well, it wasn't for him. He was like, genuinely, I've never been suplexed on the outside before. This yeah. Hurts. And it was like, Wait, the, which, considering who Fritz is. Yeah. Yeah, you tell me that man doesn't. That's like daily drills. Now cement yeah. suplexes. Oh no. <laughs> You said this was the warm-up. It is. <laughs> <laughs> ah, yeah, but and the music at the end. I think um, that is oh. of all the things I think it could have realistically got an Oscar nomination for. I'm kind of shocked that didn't get best song. Yeah. Maybe if the Barbie movie hadn't come out and swallowed up two of the nominations, it would have been in the running. It was from a, a guy called Richard Reed Perry who's one of the members of the Arcade Fire. And I've seen oh, he's okay. done a few movie scores uh, recently. And uh, given what's happened with their lead singer, maybe we won't be seeing much Arcade Fire anytime soon. But Richard Reed Perry has very much carved himself a nice, solid niche with this. That's another recommendation out there. Get on Spotify and start listening to that. I have had... I googled it, what the end song was, assuming it was like an 80s power ballad that I just never yeah. heard of or reinterpretation of it. It's an original composition for this film. Oh, and like okay. I said, it should have got a Best Song Oscar nomination, yeah. really, if that's the case. Oh, God. Right. I uh, Yeah, we've, we've talked this through. And uh, look, we've, we have been a bit scattered because it is... It, it fried my emotions. Well, we're all emotionally fried. Once we've unfried them, we'll be back in a week's time to complete another great epic saga. It'll be probably his final ever chapter. We're dusting off the rerun, the rivalry, to talk... About one last 17th and final singles match between Hiroshi Tanahashi and Kazuchika Okada. Okada crying as much as Simon was at the oh. end of the Iron Claw. Quite possibly. Yeah, it's uh, it's Okada versus Tanahashi to quote Blink-182 one more time. Yeah. I don't think Blink-182 coined the term one more time. I would say Daft Punk, perhaps. All wrestling crowds for the past. Yeah. <laughs> you get me point. Yes, yes, I do. But if people want to give Simon other great classic wor- uh, phrases that Blink-182 have coined, how can they get in touch with you, Simon? They can get in touch with me on Twitter where I'm so known as Simon Cross Free. Free for the number of numbers in Blink-182. My name's Lorcan Mullen, that's L-O-R-C-A-N-M-U-L-L-A for the A at the start of Adkisson, N for the N at the end of Adkisson. We never even mention curses. Yeah. <laughs> the curse of this podcast, we never get to finish everything that we want to talk no. about. 
But until then, there's nothing left to say at this point except that my name's Lorcan Mullen. My name's Simon Cross. Thank you for letting us tell you something. Have a good time, and until the next time, the balcony is closed. <laughs>